mindfulness mode. The breath is that which we exist on. It is everything that is of our life itself. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness here on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host and mindfulness life coach, Bruce Langford. Mindful Tribe, has there ever been a time when you've just felt just so discouraged? You've felt this gripping feeling of anxiety, discouragement, maybe it was even leading toward depression. Well, today we're going to be talking about that very thing, and I'm very honored to have Dr. Joe Luciani with me today. Dr. Luciani, are you in mindfulness mode today? I certainly am. <laughs> I think uh, my daughter actually teaches mindfulness at the school system in our local town. And uh, she asks me that question every time we pick up the phone. Dad, are you in a mindful mode right now? <laughs> so you're quite used to answering this I'm question. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> she focuses me on the present. <laughs> well, I just want to share a bit about you, Dr. Luciani. Dr. Luciani has been practicing, has been a practicing clinical psychologist for more than 40 years. And he's the internationally best-selling author of the self-coaching series of books, which is now published in 10 languages. And his latest book, I'm quite excited about this book, Mindful Tribe. It's called Unlearning anxiety and depression the four-step self-coaching program to reclaim your life so how would you feel if you could actually self-coach in order to help yourself well that's what this book is about and dr luciani appears frequently on national television radio and online and has been featured in numerous national media sites so dr luciani let's start with mindfulness what does mindfulness mean to you what's your definition my definition of mindfulness is really anchoring yourself in the present uh, with anxiety and depression, we I call it time traveling. We, we leave the present. We're either in the future with what-if thinking or we're reminiscing about a sad past, but we are anywhere but mindful and present. Um, I, I have often said that if you are mindfully present in what's right in front of you, your environment, your experience, it is quite literally impossible to be anxious or depressed because to be anxious or depressed, you have to leave that present and travel, future, past. So mindfulness to me is training yourself to be more in the present. Now, are we ever totally in the present 24-7? Not really, because our brains have been wired to anticipate. That protects us from saber-toothed tigers and everything else. But we practice it and we try to do it more and more and more. It's a better way to live and it's a better way to circumvent getting anxiety or depression. Well, let's talk about your book, Dr. Luciani. In your book, you talk about ways that we can actually deal with depression ourselves if it starts to grip us. So can you, can you help us through this a little bit? Well, with depression, I, I usually connect depression and anxiety, because to me, they're first cousins. Usually you don't see a depression without anxiety and vice versa. Um, but with depression and anxiety, uh, what, what is important is to realize that we have to look at our thoughts in a different way. Uh, if we are passive to our thinking, 
than the disruption caused by insecurity-driven thinking uh, will have its way with us. We're kind of in the back seat, insecurities in the front seat driving the truck, and uh, we are its victim. So the insecurity-driven thoughts, which we can get into if you'd like to at some point, but the insecurity-driven thoughts will dominate if we are of what I call passive mind. So my book is really a way to develop what I call active mind, and that's to really be able to see the process of thinking in a more depersonalized way in order to make some choices about the thoughts that flow and the reactions we have. Right. And uh, I love how you start your book off with a story but a frog. Can you share a bit of that with us? Thumper. Yes, Thumper. Uh, yeah, there was, this is my, it's my all-time favorite story. <clears throat> there was a, we, I, I take everyone to Frogland for a second. We li we're in a swamp here, and the swamp is covered with this brick wall, and all the frogs in this swamp have never seen beyond the wall. So generation after generation, the frog, frogs just, what's on the other side of the wall? What's on the other side? So one day the mayor of the uh, Frogville decides to have a race of the strongest and the fittest, that they'll run up and try to leap over that wall and be able to report back. So the day of the race, there's five frogs that are lined up and this one sickly frog is there and that's Thumper. So the strong five are there and Thumper. The gun goes off, they're careening down the path, running toward that wall. Now, one thing I have to just stop you for a second because frogs are eternal pessimists. So all the frogs on the sidelines are yelling, stop, stop, you're going to hurt yourself, stop. So the five strong frogs started to listen, and they dropped out one by one by one until finally the only frog left in the race was Thumper. And he's running and running, and he takes a leap for the wall, gets about halfway up, and he's hanging on. And the pessimistic frogs below are saying, let go, we'll grab you. You can't do it. You can't do it. But Thumper kept going. He got to the top of the wall, and he was the first frog to ever see beyond the wall. And the reason he was able to see beyond the wall is because Thumper was deaf. <laughs> I love that story too. I love that story. And it's, it's certainly so true that we become blind. We become deaf to what's, you know, to reality. And uh, I love the fact that your book is so easy to get into, and it just pulls the reader right in. And then in chapter two, you pull us in again because it's entitled, Two Words That Will Change Your Life. So can you share that with us? There, there are two words, control and insecurity. Uh, understanding those two words will give you the foundation to understand everything that you need to go forward. Let's start with insecurity. No one escapes insecurity. We, we all live in a world where we don't have perfect parents. We all experience loss, separation, illness. So we all have some degree of insecurity, which is a form of vulnerability. So as we grow, in order to compensate for vulnerability, we tend to develop controlling strategies, anticipation, worry, hiding, avoidance, all these type of things that protect us from our feelings of vulnerability, which is not a terrible thing, but what happens over time is trying to control life is inherently stressful over time. It's like a juggler juggling balls. Lactic acid eventually sets in, and what started out as an easy juggle becomes impossible. <clears throat> over time, 
our emotional or controlling juggle builds up a kind of psychological lactic acid. Eventually, that juggle will collapse because of the ongoing cumulative stress. And when it collapses, that's the onset of anxiety and depression. So the two things, insecurity is the foundation from which control juggle springs from. And the control juggle, as long as it's working, insulates us somewhat from getting anxiety or depression. But if that control juggle falters, that's when symptoms start to occur. Because now we are relatively defenseless. Right. Why is it that in our society we've come to this place where there is so much shame in anxiety and especially depression, and that in itself causes so many problems? I think I think it's it's it has a lot to do with just feeling inadequate. I think that we we always put on a persona, you know, that we are maintaining ourselves in our in our place in our family, with our friends in the world. And I think with anxiety and depression, it's a very humbling experience because we feel so out of control, so vulnerable, uh, so defenseless. So I, I think the shame has to do with admitting to yourself and the world that you are indeed hobbled uh, by your own emotions. And I think we have kind of a, a collective sense, uh, at least as I grew up, I don't know about you, Bruce, but where I grew up in an Italian neighborhood, if you said you had any kind of uh, emotional problems, you get a slap across the head saying, come on, you don't need any help. Just just bear with it and get through this. So you, you tend to bury things. You tend to just step away from the reality of what you're feeling and try to put on a strong face. Right. And in my family, that was true even for just general sickness. You know, if you were generally sick of, in any way, you know, OK, well, just go to your room and deal with it. You know, like it wasn't something that was even... Uh, embraced, you know, in our family, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, we are a product of our developmental uh, experiences, for better or worse. Uh, and, uh, you know, basically, uh, we are an aggregate of all of that that has transpired in the past in the moment. That's that present moment. That's why uh, unlearning anxiety and depression is not about retrospective analysis. We don't need to spend 10 years knowing why. You know, it's like a cigarette smoker. Does the cigarette smoker need to know why they took the first cigarette? Absolutely not. No. So all that past is embodied in the moment. So deal with the habits of the moment and you're dealing with your entire life. And that's why I think it's a more direct approach to be working with the here and now issues and problems and reframing and rethinking and taking active control than going back and understanding why. <clears throat> the truth will not set you free. I started out in Freudian analysis as my first uh, experience with, uh, with therapy. And uh, for years, well, maybe a year and a half, two years, um, the analyst never said anything, just free associated. And you felt cleansed, almost like going to confession. You know, you felt like you did something but you never got an answer. Right. <laughs> right. So so you believe that self-help is where we should all be looking, and specifically yeah. in your book, really. Well, I would love everyone to look in my book. Yes. <laughs> well, it's, it's a great book, <laughs> Unlearning Anxiety and Depression. I mean, it sounds simple. Let's just unlearn it. But of course, it's not simple. But you know, it's a, it's a wonderful point you make. And... In a sense, uh, psychology needs to make common sense. 
And I've always felt that way. It's not rocket science. We, we've, we've, you know, with all this psychobabble and all that, we've tend to complicate it complicate something that really is fundamentally common sense once you understand the dynamics of it and i'll put it as simple as this once you understand the as the essential dynamic you're either feeding your problems or you're starving them it's really as simple as that so once you understand what feeds and once you understand what starves you've got a format then for going forward and working on your life day to day just as you would practice an instrument Right. Well, you know, the the whole key is, I think, for human beings to realize that we do complicate things. And I find that when I teach when I teach meditation, I find that most people that I work with, they just immediately jump to a place where they either think I can't do this. It's too complicated. My mind is is just too busy. I'm not like everybody else. You know, they think all these thoughts. And if we could just be more simplistic and realize that, no, it actually is very, very simple. It's so simple that it's almost difficult because it's simple, right? You're right. You're absolutely right. Uh, it's, it's the uh, meditation. I have always said it's, it's the art of uh, doing nothing. You know, it's, it's just learning to be silent. Um, but, you know, the thing is that, and you kind of express exactly the point that, you know, our mind keeps saying, I can't do this. You know, that's the subtlety of insecurity. And that's why I always try to, I, I don't know if we'll talk about mind talk, but in step one, the most important step is to separate facts from emotional fictions. And we could talk more about this, but essentially, um, when you understand that there are really two voices in you, if you will put a quote around that, uh, the healthy voice of objective reality. And then there's this voice that insecurity speaks to you from. And that's kind of a, uh, you know, oh, I can't, it's too hard, I'll never do, that. that's the voice. Once you understand and can start picking up the difference and you start seeing, ah, that's, that's my insecurity talking, that's not me. So we're making a separation between me, healthy me, and the thoughts that are kind of cannibalized by insecurity. Once you do that, then you are in a position of choice. You clearly then can say, well, do I listen to insecurity and say, I can't, I can't, or do I, in a more healthy sense, reframe this and take a closer look at it? So it's very important, whether it be in meditation or in life, that we, we have a, a process of looking at our thoughts dispassionately enough to have the choice to decide which way we're going to go, feeding or starving our habits habits of insecurity I'm referring to. Well, I would like to talk a bit more about mind talk and you deal with that in part two of your book in chapter 11. And uh, so let's talk about mind talk. Okay. Well, there, there are four steps to mind talk. And, and as we've just begun, the first step is, is critical. Um, if you are uh, more or less contaminated by insecurity thinking, uh, then you're not in control. Insecurity is. Uh, so in the first step, we're really learning to separate ourselves from the voice of insecurity. There are facts, objective, reality-based facts that we can look to and verify. And there are emotional fictions. What's important is to realize that with an emotional fiction, emotions aren't facts. We treat them as if they're facts. Now, sometimes, you know, I should say they aren't necessarily facts. But most of the time, the emotional fictions of anxiety and depression, insecurity, are fictions 
and we treat them as if they're factual. I'll never get a job. And what if I can't, what if I get the virus? But we start to react to those fictions as if they're facts. And our body reacts to those fictional facts in such a way that we start to produce stress and anxiety. So the first step is learning the critical step of separating facts from emotional fictions. That alone begins to put you in a position of empowerment. The second step is really stopping the runaway train of insecurity-driven thinking. You know, we're kind of on this hamster wheel of what if, what if, what if, and all of this anticipatory stuff. And, you know, th there are ways that we can stop the, the runaway train. Um, one way that, that I, I've always been kind of intrigued by, I was visiting my son when he lived in Manhattan. And, and, and I was listening to the sound of, you know, the, the traffic out and the horns and the blaring. And I said, how the heck do you sleep with all of this noise? And he said, what noise? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I was driving home and I realized the incredible power the brain has to defocus and to ignore insignificant facts. Now, with emotions, we have that same capacity. If we listen to insecurity-driven thinking and we go to the races with that, you know, what if I don't get a job and then what will happen to my... So if we are focused on the insecurity-driven thinking, we're listening to the traffic noise. If we actively ignore and train ourselves to turn away, that it's just the traffic noise, you don't have to pay attention to it. That's just my insecurity talking. I don't have to pay attention. So you can train yourself to defocus. The brain will actually, this is the neuroplasticity of, of what I talk about in the book, your brain structure, the neurons in your brain will actually restructure a different habit in your brain where those thoughts and those feelings that were more or less reflexive can actually now be changed and changed as you would if you learned a new habit and your brain will respond accordingly. So we can defocus, we can depersonalize and separate ourselves. Uh, so that's actively ignoring uh, a more active approach. Not everybody likes to just, it's like meditation, as you said. You know, some people are just too much of a, a thinking person to really grasp the, the just actively ignoring. So a more direct approach I use is called the ABC technique. Uh, we can't stop a thought from percolating into our mind, an insecurity-driven thought. We call let's call that the A thought. Okay, so that pops into your mind. What if I what if I get the virus? Now, the B thought would be a follow-up of that A thought. Well, if I get the virus, uh, do I go to a hospital? So that's the B thought. The C thought is, am I going to die then? So the A thought percolates up. We add a B thought, a C thought, a D, and we go through the alphabet. You can't stop the A thought, but you darn well can stop whether you go with a B thought. A C. So you could train yourself to realize, wait a second, you know, stop it, drop it. That's my mantra for that. Stop it and drop it. Cut that ABC technique down and stop flowing with your insecurity-driven thinking. And another one, which I'm sure you're familiar with, Bruce, is envisioning. You know, when we have visualizations, you know, we get into that parasympathetic, relaxed place. And visualizations are another way of pulling yourself away from the disruptive effects of insecurity and putting yourself not only mentally, but physically in a better place to move on and away from insecurity. 
So that's what step two is all about. And step three is about what I call responsive living. And the best way I can explain that is if, if you get in your car and you have a thought, well, what if, what if a, a dog runs in front of my car? Will I hit the brake? Will I turn the wheel? So you're now in an anticipatory state uh, and you're anticipating, which is very reminiscent of anxiety. So this is a place of what I might call self-distrust. You, you're not sure what to do. And what if this happens? What? So you're trying to prepare yourself. That's what anxious people do. They don't have the self-trust to feel they'll just handle life. So a person with adequate self-trust who feels, you know, I've dealt with thousands of problems in my life. You know, I'll handle the next one as it occurs. That person gets behind the wheel and they may have the same thought. What if a dog runs in front of my car? But they say, I'll deal with it in the moment. So they drive along, a dog runs in front of the car, boom, instincts. They're, we're survival machines. We hit the brake, we turn that without thinking, without anticipating. So the self-trusting person doesn't have to live in the future anticipating what might come around the corner. They live more in the moment, in a mindful moment. They're more capable of sustaining that because with self-trust, you don't have to know what's coming around the corner. You just have to believe in your natural resources and instincts to handle what comes around that corner. And the last step is the motivation. And that's, that's the self-coaching aspect of my book, psychology and insight. These are all critically important to set the foundation, but without the proper optimism and uh, ability to go forward, uh, you know, with, with feeling hopeful, uh, you, you're going to stumble along the way and you need to have that ongoing motivational impetus to sustain yourself over time. Anyone could say, I'm going to play the guitar. They pick up the instrument. Wow, that first few days, they're doing great. Then, you know, after a while, they have a little problem. And before you know it, the guitar is in the corner. So you need the ongoing motivation. And, you know, the optimist and the pessimist, the, no one knows the future. But I think you'll agree with me, Bruce, the, the optimist predicts a positive outcome. So the moment is experienced very differently for the optimist than for the pessimist in the moment. We live our lives very differently if we're optimistic. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. That's for sure. Dr. Luciani, I want to ask you if you can tell us a story about someone you've worked with, a client, where you've used these techniques that you've shared in unlearning anxiety and depression and where they've come from a very dark place and then moved into a positive place. Uh, I'm going through my Rolodex of uh, clients that I've worked with. Um, and it's it, what I'm reminded of is the anxiety patients. That's typically anxiety and depression come together. But uh, I'm working right now remotely with a woman. She's a uh, mother of three. And uh, she is not doing a, a good job containing her anxieties about there's an elderly uh, parent living in the home, two teenage, two teenage and one, like, maybe let's say three teenagers at home. And they all want to go out. They all want to see their girlfriends. They all want to socialize. And she doesn't want anyone to leave the house because of the parents being so old uh, and infirmed. And so she is constantly uh, just anxious, depressed, watching the news, fretting, wringing her hands. Um, so essentially, you're dealing now with an objective reality. It's 
So this is what makes it a little different in these times that we're working with right now. There is a virus, there is an objective reality, but what's important is to begin the process of separating facts from fictions, that's step one, to begin the process by realizing, well, what's factual, what's fictional? The best way to do that is to start looking at what's proportionate, what's disproportionate. Now, she has a case for wanting to protect her parents, but there has to be some objective reality for her her imagination is such that she sees the virus on every countertop, on everything she touches. There is a disproportionate reaction. So with her, we try to kind of bring that into a more understandable reality and try to ferret out what is more or less her emotional insecurity dictating and where she can start to pull away and reframe those thoughts and be more realistic. And it does, it does require somewhat of a leap of faith and some, some courage to really recognize that there are some things we can do to mitigate and protect ourselves, but to overdo it, to overstress. So with her, you know, it's just another example of where I need to now get her off. This is ongoing. So I need to get her off that hamster wheel. I need to get her, especially with the ABC thinking, she's just running away with these thoughts constantly, not sleeping. Her whole physiology is suffering. Uh, I need to encourage her to start interrupting the process of those thoughts and responsive living. I need to get her to courageously accept. It's, it's like the serenity prayer. You know, I need to get her to accept those things that she can't change and to be able to, with some self-trust, she needs to be able to begin to realize that whatever the changes that occur in her life right now and with her kids, she needs to trust that she can deal with it moment to moment. There'll be some good decisions and not so good decisions, but essentially she needs to believe with hope she's going to get through this and she'll make the decisions as she progresses from a center of self-trust. And the motivation, of course, comes from my right now working with her, trying to instill this. At first, it seems artificial for her because she doesn't have the optimism, but I'm trying to instill that. And I do that with my patients. Uh, a depressed person will come into therapy and have very little energy uh, and really be down. And sometimes you need to infuse the energy in the room and give them that energy and, and mirror that energy. And uh, they respond. People that are down, you know, it's not false. It's, it's really a true sense of trying to help them feel, you know, more in charge and more energized to handle their problems. Right. And speaking of energy, how much can just getting out there and get moving and exercising make a difference? I know Hal Elrod talked in his book about how he got into the gym. A friend of his said, you got to start working out. And for him, that was where depression started changing and he started moving into a better place. Is that what you teach as well? Exercise fundamentally is is just a... Uh, probably one of the best medications for anxiety and depression for a lot of reasons. Um, one, if we look at it from the psychological, it is distracting. It is, it is, it pulls us away from just the mental chatter that we sit and stir with and stew with. So uh, exercise will invariably pull you away from those thoughts. It's, it's pro productive. It's progressive. We're increasing our, our energy. We're trying to do a little bit more each day. Uh, it, it puts us, it, you know, it gives us some endorphins, some natural chemicals that help our mind feel better. So it's encouraging, it's motivating, it, it, it induces a sense of hopefulness. 
uh, all because we're using our body the way it needs to be used. We sleep better, we feel better. All in all, exercise just awakens the potential to feel good and be good, and to, and perhaps more importantly, to empower ourselves that we can be doing something productive and constructive for our lives. So I'm, a, I'm a, I've been uh, four marathons. I've been jogging since 1977, and I, I do it seven days a week, rain or shine. I wouldn't, I, I don't know what my life would be like without it, to be honest with you. Wow. And what about the element of nature? So many people say, you know, you need to have some nature exposure in your life. What are your thoughts on that? Oh my gosh, I love gardening. And um, I can sit and, and just sit in the, in, a, in the lush grass and I can stare at nature. And uh, what I try to do is I try not to interpret. Eckhart Tolle, I, I know I'm going to not say this correctly, but Eckhart Tolle talked about, for example, seeing a tree, but not, not cognitively saying that's a tree, but trying to really see the tree without thinking of treeness. And that to me is such an incredible challenge to just look around me at nature and not interpret it or judge it, but to really see it. It's such a challenge. Yeah, it really is. It really is, but it's its so miraculous what we're surrounded by. And if we can just stop and realize that, yeah, it, it can make a difference how we think. Dr. Luciani, tell us about your own meditation practice. Do you meditate every day? I try to. Uh, um, I used to I used to try different modalities of meditation. Um, um, I'll give you a brief. Uh, basically, uh, I, I studied yoga for quite some time, and and with the yogic meditation, uh, I had a wonderful instructor. His name was Rama. He's a dear friend, uh, and we would sit after class, just he and I, just in in you know just meditation. Um, and uh, I I felt that. To me, that was a real centering process, but I wanted to just incorporate that. Uh, I believe it's called Sazen, just a walking meditation. Uh, so when I jog, I will sometimes try to get into a meditative rhythm. Um, you feel, especially when you're jogging or exercising, you feel the breath becomes just a very rhythmic kind of thing. So it's very easy to do once you focus on that. Sometimes I'll do it standing in line at a, at a, at a, at a store or, uh, I always try to find opportunities to be in a meditative mode. I think a misnomer for many people is they think unless they're sitting, you know, in a lotus position for an hour, it's it's not really worthwhile. But meditation can be a very personal thing. But essentially, I think it was Peter Matheson. I, I, I wrote the, the Snow Leopard. I, I took a Zen retreat one time. And uh, I always remember just the image he said, you know, it's like the leaves, just let them blow in and just let them blow out. Just don't cling to thoughts. Um, it's worth practicing. And <clears throat> speaking of practice, whether it's self-coaching or whether it's meditation, I think it's very important for anyone to recognize that habits, the brain is geared to form habits. Uh, unfortunately, insecurity can become a habit and we wind up with anxiety and depression, but also good habits. So if you're trying to cultivate a habit of mindfulness, a habit of uh, just optimism, whatever that habit might be, you have to realize you're not going to just do it by intellectually wanting it to happen. You really do have to practice. And if you're not willing to practice, you're not going to change the neuroanatomy of your brain. So practice is critically important for what you want in life. 
Right. Dr. Luciani, I've been wanting to ask you this question. Uh, you teach self-coaching. You teach that we can learn how to do this ourselves through your book, Unlearning Anxiety and Depression. Have you received any flack from other psychiatrists and psychologists and people working in the field who would rather not have you tell the general public that they can do this themselves? Well, the most flack I get, and I'll be very candid, is that in the book, I treat anxiety and depression as not illnesses, but as habits. And I know that sounds heretical to most people. Um, but nevertheless, I have found in my practice that habits, all habits are learned and all habits can be broken. And that's where the unlearning part of the title of the book comes from. So if, if we have learned through our vulnerabilities and the stress of trying to control life, if we have depleted our chemistry, because stress depletes chemistry, people say, well, isn't it a, a chemical imbalance? Well, yes, but the chemical imbalance is the end result of being stressed over time. So we deplete those neurotransmitters. So the flack that really comes my way is what you say their habits. Of course, there are some organic situations that will preclude certain schizophrenia and extreme depression anxiety i'm talking about mild to moderate anxiety treat them as habits and one benefit of visualizing these as habits is that we know about habits they can be broken uh, they can be learned so you're in the driver's seat you're empowered because we know about habits treating it as an illness what happens when you get an illness well you're a victim of that illness. And by definition, a victim is powerless. You're not powerless. Right. I really like that you've explained that to us. I think that's fantastic. I also want to ask you a question about bullying because I used to work in this all the time, full time. Do you have a story about maybe yourself or, or someone where bullying was an issue and maybe mindfulness would have made a difference if it had been applied? Uh, a man I'm working with, early 60s, uh, he was bullied as a child. The father uh, contributed to that by, uh, you know, just forcing him to do things that made him feel uncomfortable and therefore garnered more scown and, and, and bullying from other kids. Um, so in the present, he has this notion that, uh, that he has to stand up to anyone and fight back and, and he loses that compassionate ability to work with people effectively because he's always on guard expecting to be bullied. Uh, so he, he's developed a kind of uh, a skewed personality because now uh, he comes across as a very tight, almost defensive person because that child that was bullied in him is anticipating, of course, the reaction. So in a mindful way, what I'm trying to help him realize is that he has to really separate from the reflexes and the more mindful and present to take a look around, to be mindful of the experience where nothing is threatening. The old father, the old bullies, they're, not, they're no longer part, but he carries that with him and implants them in the present. So, you know, I think being mindful is able to extricate yourself from all the overlay of defensiveness that comes with being bullied, the shame, the guilt, uh, and, and puts us in a better position to work with ourselves in a more pristine way. 
So I think it's very important, especially with someone of, and, and you know, in one way or another, I guess we've all experienced some type of challenge. Uh, and I think it's important. Mindfulness in so many ways is so applicable to not just, you know, the, the negative side of emotional distress, anxiety, depression, but in all aspects of life, whether it be more fulfillment, you mentioned nature, uh, I'm into astrophotography. Don't ask my new wife, but my wife gets the bills and <laughs> nevertheless, it's an expensive hobby. But looking up into the night sky, uh, the passion of realizing what's around us, there's no better place than to be mindful, to just sit back on a starry night and just, just let yourself gaze up there and just take it in, just absorb it. Uh, that's the kind of meditation, I think, and the mindfulness that is so restorative. Oh, I really like the idea that you've suggested so many different ways to meditate and to be mindful. I really appreciate that. Dr. Luciani, as we move forward in the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So just 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this. Who is one person who has influenced mindfulness in your life? I would have to say uh, the influence of Carl Jung, the Swiss psychiatrist, uh, just his works his work on the collective unconscious just stimulated my thinking in a, in a very out-of-the-box way. And uh, it, it led the way for meditation. Jung was known for his, in, at that time, radical thinking. But uh, he was very much into Eastern and, and meditative aspects of life. And uh, I, I, I began my studies and interest reading Jung. Ah, thank you. How has mindfulness affected your emotions? I started in psychology because of my own anxieties. Uh, I, I wanted answers. That's why I got into analysis. That's why I pursued all this. I wanted answers. Uh, mindfulness has been the, the, the icing, if you will, on the cake. Uh, I, I laid the foundation. I found all the gears that had to get into gear. And I've kind of put myself in a better position to, to experience life. So mindfulness now is the ability to take all of that and really then take that deep breath and and really experience the wonder and the beauty and the excitement of life. Um, it only gets better. And I've learned through mindfulness every day, every decade is a better decade than the one preceding it. I am so encouraged by life itself. Ah, that's very uplifting. Tell us how breathing is a part of your mindfulness. The breath you know there's there's not it's just so central to uh so many different schools and orientations the breath is that which we exist on it is everything that is of our life itself it is the embodiment uh, psychologically and physically of that which sustains us so as we focus on the breath we i think we touch something much deeper uh, then our car, you know, the intellect is limited. We, we tend to make it, the, you know, the throne where everything else rests, but it's not. There's so much more to us than our intellect. The breath, as subtle and as nebulous as it may be, is something that is instructive. We can learn so much by, you know, it's looking at the breath, but not in a cognitive way, but in an experiential way that we can learn about ourselves. So the breath to me is a teacher. Dr. Luciani, your book on learning anxiety and depression is fantastic, and I highly recommend it. Are there any other books that you would recommend related to mindfulness? Well, the book that I would recommend would be um, The Book of Awakening by Mark Napo. 
uh, I believe it's spelled N-E-P-O. Um, it's, it's very close to my personal feeling about meditation. Uh, it struck a note with me. I think, you know, I think it depends, you know, what you're reading and, and, and if you find a book that speaks to you, uh, it's the same with meditation. There seems to be many different languages that speak to many different people, but it's like spokes on a wheel. They all point to that central hub. And this was one that's pointed to that hub for me. Okay, that's great. And I understand you're also a Joseph Campbell fan. I am. I am. I actually have a book autographed by him when he was at the C.G. Jung Institute. He was doing a lecture. Yeah, he's quite fascinating. But Campbell, Campbell teaches us about the interrelatedness of all things through myth and symbol. And it's that interrelatedness that blows your mind. Because when we talked before about nature, um, there is just so much that is beyond just our little narrow focus that once you open up to this world as it is beyond thought it's incredible yeah well i i'm fascinated with joseph campbell and his ideas i think it's it's absolutely intriguing can you share an app which can help people with mindfulness mindfulness app i cannot i uh, again uh, I, I spend all my time introspectively trying to figure things out. Um, I, I don't I don't go searching, you know, and I should. As I mentioned, my daughter's a, a wellness teacher, and uh, she would be able to sit and, and really criticize me right now for this. I'm sure she has a, a bibliography of things to look at a, a mile long. Uh, so I'll pass on that uh, and, and plead that uh, it's remiss and that it is one thing that I should open myself up to more more often. Right, sure. And uh, sometimes my guests say the best app is shutting off your phone. <laughs> <laughs> and I can agree with that, that, that sometimes we just need to rid ourselves of, of some of that stimulus. Well, again, I, I would have to say Sky Safari is my best app, but that... That's all about the sky and being able to navigate the heavens. So <laughs> unless you're into that. <laughs> right. Well, I think that it's it's fascinating that you suggested, you know, just look at the sky on a clear night and just sit back and enjoy the stars. And that in itself is mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I uh, really appreciate talking to you. How can we connect with you, Dr. Luciani? What's the best place for us to go to connect with you? The best place would be my website. It's uh, www.selfcoaching.net, N-E-T. There's a a blog section. I I post every day. I post a blog, so take a look at that. There's a contact section if you want to reach me directly. And I have uh, plenty of videos and articles and et cetera at the website. So that's probably the best place. I'm on Facebook and Twitter and uh, Instagram, the usual social media. Sure. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Dr. Luciani. I really appreciate it. You're quite welcome. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you, Bruce. All the best to you. Bye now. Bye-bye. Mindful Tribe, I hope you enjoyed today's interview. If you did, please tell your friends about the show. Every person who subscribes and listens helps our show. So in the meantime, take what you heard today and reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.